Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 18 today. Um, But I I do want to uh, just read through the the whole chapter. Um, This really is a sustained argument that Paul is making throughout Galatians chapter 3. And we're kind of plunging into one part of it. And so um, let's just read the whole thing and try to remember the broader context. And then we'll dig into 15 to 18. So beginning in verse 1 of Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit... To you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, long, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This morning I had the uh, opportunity to preach in Arcola at our church plant there, and I preached Psalm chapter 3, which... Uh, I I have preached that here. Uh, But in that psalm, uh, David is dealing with a a very difficult situation. He says there that many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. He's, he's He's on the run from Absalom at that time. He's being run out of his kingdom, it seems. 
and people are taunting and mocking. You are under a curse. There is no salvation for your soul from God. And when I preached that this morning and and when I preached that here, whenever that was, uh, I quoted from Charles Spurgeon, the uh, preacher from London, if you don't know Spurgeon, uh, from the 1800s. But I, I quoted from Charles Spurgeon where he says that there's no more bitter affliction for a Christian than when they start to fear that there is no help for you in God. As we've been going through Galatians and seeing the distinction between law and gospel, I said this last Sunday, it is so much more than just a theological distinction that we are trying to make. It is not just about trying to correctly you know, dot our theological I's and cross our T's and so on so we have it just right. Uh, that Theological precision in and of itself is a good thing and a noble thing. But as I said last time, there is a whole wealth of comfort to be found in understanding this correctly. Getting the gospel right in this matter is a great and tremendous aid and comfort and help in the Christian life. When the law thunders its demands and we feel the condemnation of it because we fail to keep it, or when we're tempted to believe that there is indeed no help for us in God, there is no salvation for our soul in God on account of our sin, whether it's our own conscience accusing us or some other person who is taunting us, we are being reminded to look outside of ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, to look outside of our own efforts and goodness to the promise That God Almighty has made to forgive and to save those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the promised blessing that was given to Abraham and that comes to pass in and through Jesus Christ, who is his offspring. And it is this promise that our text this afternoon is reminding us of and instructing us about. And so as we go through verses 15 to 18... I want you to see the certainty of God's gospel promise so that you might be renewed in in hopefulness, renewed in your confidence in God to save you, so that even if your feelings may not yet be happy feelings, you might be convinced of God's faithfulness and goodness towards you, at least in your mind, understanding what the scriptures say and what it is that God himself, almighty, unchanging, has promised to do for those who trust in his son. The Apostle Paul, in the spirit of God, who is inspiring Paul as he writes these words, he is not wasting ink with these words. This is, again, part of God's word that equips and establishes us for every good work. And so let's come and let's behold this gospel promise of God. And so our our text this afternoon, beginning in verse 15, once again returns to Abraham. As you recall, as we just read and and as Harley preached when, when he preached the beginning of the chapter, Paul has already told us that Abraham was justified by faith. Uh, In verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the blessing that was promised to Abraham, that in you shall all the nations be blessed, this was a promise of the gospel. This is something Paul has already uh, laid out for us as well uh, in verses 7 and 8 and 9. The ultimate seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent would come ultimately from Abraham's line and would bless sinners not just from his line but from all nations of the earth. The promise of blessing to the nations that God gave to Abraham foreshadowed that just as Abraham was counted righteous by believing God's promise, so too many from Gentile nations would likewise be counted righteous by faith in God's promise, namely in Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of that promise. And then in verse 14, we're told that this Abrahamic blessing 
now does come to Gentiles in and through Jesus Christ. We today are justified by faith in Christ Jesus alone because of what Christ Jesus has accomplished in satisfying the curse of the law that stands over us, which we looked at last time. So Paul continues with his explanation of these things, explaining how the promise made to Abraham, which is received by faith, fits with the fact that God then later gave the law of Moses. If you remember, the law of Moses does make certain blessings contingent upon obedience. And the Judaizers, the opponents of Paul in Galatia, they take this to mean that this law of Moses is something that is to be obeyed in order to be saved. This is part of how you're saved. You believe in Christ and you obey, and the two combine, and so you will be saved. That's how they take the Mosaic Covenant. But Paul has been saying no to this, and he continues to explain. Uh, First here, by further explaining the gospel promise that was made to Abraham. So again, it is to this promise that we must look for salvation and for hope and for comfort in this life. And so our first point, God's gospel promise is made all the more certain to us by God's self-imposed covenant obligation. That's a mouthful. But God's gospel promise is made all the more certain to us by God's self-imposed covenant obligation. So, God is true. When God decides he's to do something, he just does it. If God gives a promise, he will keep it. He doesn't change. He's not like a man. He doesn't lie. His mind doesn't change. He doesn't need to swear an oath in order to keep his word. He doesn't need to uh, call down uh, potential threats upon himself in order to make sure that he will come, come through when he promises something. And yet, we actually see him do these very things at different times. When God made his promise to Abraham, he did so in Genesis chapter 12 originally. And then in chapter 15, so there's this promise that this offspring will come and bless the nations. And in fact, there's a promise that he's going to have many offspring as numbering the sand on the seashore. And in chapter 15, Abraham sees he's still childless. And God reiterates this promise to him. But he asks for further confirmation that all of these good things will indeed come to pass. And so God, again, reiterates his promise. And then he guarantees it through a seemingly odd ceremony. He has Abraham... Take a heifer, a goat, and a ram and cut them in half. And he also takes a turtle dove and a pigeon and he separates these two parts. And then as Abraham sleeps, we're told great darkness falls upon him. And then a, a, this vision, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And it says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Again, that's that's an odd thing to read about. Splitting these animals apart and separating them, and then this fire pot passes through them. It seems odd to us. But the fire pot and the torch are representative of God himself. And the meaning of what's going on there, the meaning of this covenant-striking ceremony, of this symbolism, is God is effectively saying, may I become like these animals And more so, if I do not keep my word that I am promising to you today. God is promising with a self-imposed threat if he doesn't do it. In Jeremiah 34, verse 18, uh, that's where we find out, it's a good explanation of this ceremony, this passing through the parts of these scattered, these two uh, these animals that have been cut in half. Uh, if, you're, if you're wondering where we know, how we know that that means, um, you know, may I become like these animals or more so if I do not keep my word. Uh, we see that very clearly in Jeremiah 34, 18. We, weren't, we won't read that now, but you, you can jot that down and turn there when you get a chance if you want. 
So why, why is God doing this with Abraham? Is this because God needs a little extra motivation? He needs a threat. He needs to swear and promise. Of course, this is not the case. It's not because God is untrustworthy or there's uncertainty on God's part. Rather, he does this for Abraham's sake, to, hit, to help Abraham along in his faith. Abraham is asking for further confirmation of this. When God does this sort of thing, he is vividly demonstrating the certainty of what he's promising to do, and it is for the benefit of those to whom he is making the promise. There's no question in God's being that he's going to do this and keep this, but he's helping us see just, just how serious he is, if you will. So in, in, in Hebrews chapter 6, we see a similar thing. There we're told in verse 17, when God desired, first of all, earlier in chapter 6, it talks about Abraham again and promises made to Abraham. And then in verse 17, it says, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's the Abrahamic promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And, and, and probably that oath is referring, excuse me, to Psalm 110 where he swears an oath that the son of David would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek forever. And so God makes a covenant, and he, when he does this sort of activity with Abraham, he's swearing an oath, it is for the benefit of the hearer, of the receiver of the promise, to reveal to us that he will indeed absolutely keep this word. Now in our text in Galatians 3 here, Paul is saying that God has covenantally obligated himself to keep his promise to Abraham, namely to send Christ and graciously save both Jews and Gentiles by faith. So look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So he begins here with a human example. Even when men make covenants with other men, once the terms are set, you can't go back and start changing it. So in our society today, we don't, we're not super familiar with covenants, um, but, but maybe more familiar with contracts. And those are not identical things, but there are similarities. So if you sell a house and everything's agreed to and signed off on, and the closing date is set, and it's a couple days until that time, uh, you can't suddenly go back and just demand more money. Right? The agreement is struck. You can't go change the terms of it. In verse 16, Paul will say that the promise God made is ultimately to send Christ. And in verse 17, he will say that the law of Moses, which comes a long time after he made this promise to Abraham, it does not change the terms of God's covenant with Abraham. It couldn't change the terms of God's covenant with Abraham. He says it does, the law does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise of that covenant void. That is, God made a certain promise of blessing the nations in Christ the blessing of which would be received by faith, and this was not and could not be overthrown or terminated by the coming of the law at Mount Sinai when the Mosaic Covenant was struck. So we'll come back to verse 17 in a bit, but the point I just want to stress here is that God has taken steps to reveal to us, to reveal to you that his gospel promise will really truly come to pass, and that we are to count on it. God has obliged himself by covenant and oath to bless those in Christ Jesus by faith. He has guaranteed an inheritance graciously given to all who believe in his Son. And he has done this to assure us that he is faithful to keep his word. It is not as if Abraham was justified one way by faith, but now God's decided to change the rules. He's done with that promise to Abraham that he made into his offspring. Now he's going to change those rules and he's going to introduce 
a new way of being saved by believing and by obeying this law that he now gives us. He can't, and moreover, he can't. He can't and he won't because he has made a promise and he has confirmed it by way of covenant. And so we take and we hold fast to God's promise. God has made his gospel promise certain to man. And we should see how seriously he takes his own word and believe that promise. And so when doubts threaten and doubts maybe are prevailing, we are to fight that with reminder of God's own sworn promises. He has obligated himself to save all in Christ. And we make that our only hope. It is not testing God to take him at his word and to count on his promise. Secondly, as we consider God's gospel promise, God's gospel promise comes to us in Christ, the ultimate promised offspring. It comes to us in Christ, the ultimate promised offspring. So verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is a, a verse that is a little bit Challenging, it can seem a bit odd. It might even seem maybe to some like Paul's straining here a bit. And this whole matter of Abraham's offspring is a somewhat complex matter. If you, if you read Genesis chapters 12 through 22, where we see promise reiterated in chapter 12, 15, 17, 22, God's promise to Abraham and to his offspring, it is clear that certainly there is in those promises a promise of multiple offspring, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And so now Paul is saying to us that ultimately the promise is about a singular offspring. So what's going on here? Well, to try to put it simply, Paul is rightly pointing to the fact that the ultimate blessing that God was promising to Abraham was that a particular offspring, that is a, an individual from his line, would be the one to bless the world. And this blessing was not simply a physical land of Canaan, but rather it was the gift of the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God, as Hebrews 11.10 tells us. And so with Abraham's offspring, when we think of his, his children, his offspring, we find two types. We have his physical offspring, those who were physical, circumcised, if they were male, descendants who received the land of Canaan, and his spiritual offspring, those who believed as Abraham believed and received the eternal promise and inheritance. We read about this earlier, very clearly laid out these two groups in Romans chapter 4. And of course, within the nation of Israel that would come from his physical descendants, Abraham's you had some who were just physical descendants. They were those who were physical offspring, but they didn't believe as Abraham believed. And then, of course, there are some who were both. They were physical descendants of Abraham, and they shared his faith. They believed as Abraham believed. And ultimately, from Abraham's line would come the seed or offspring of Eve that God promised way back in Genesis 3.15. So Genesis 3.15 is often, we've referred to it lots here, but the first gospel message is Genesis 3.15. It's right after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin and God is pronouncing his curse upon the serpent and upon Adam and Eve and all of creation is falling under this curse of sin. But then there's this promise that there would be a seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush its head. This is the first promise of one who would come and who would reverse this curse that God is pronouncing upon mankind. 
And as God gives this promise of an offspring to Abraham, he's continuing this same promise originally given to Adam. And now he's saying to Abraham, it's going to be this individual is coming from your line. And Paul is telling us here explicitly in verse 16, this particular individual is Christ. Again, Paul is supporting his earlier statement from verse 14, where he says that the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles, not through the law, not even through proclaiming Abraham, but through Christ Jesus. The Abrahamic covenant The promises God gave to Abraham include the promise of the new covenant that would come in Christ. The one who would justify both Jew and Gentile alike by faith in him. And of course, Christ has come. He has died and he has risen again so that sinners might be forgiven. His heel was bruised, so to speak, on the cross as he suffered But in so doing, he crushed the head of the serpent. He conquered the curse of the law that sinners are under. So as to free all who believe in him from that curse. When Christ crucified is proclaimed, the blessing that God promised to Abraham is going forth. This has always been God's plan. It has always been his one unified plan. It's not as if he promised one thing to Abraham, but then he changes it up altogether in the New Testament. It's not as if he promised one thing to Abraham, but then he changed his mind, made a different promise to the people of Israel and Sinai, and then he changed it yet again for Gentiles and changed the rules again in in Matthew. This has always been his way. Abraham and the Old Testament saints, they were looking forward to what God had promised. They were looking ahead to it. It had not yet come to pass, but they were believing that God would do this work. And today we are those who are looking backward. The fulfillment has come in Christ Jesus. We can see that that promise to Abraham was kept by God, just as he said he would. Though there's difference, we have more information. We are, the new covenant has been inaugurated in Christ's blood. We can see the mystery of Christ more clearly than Abraham. Nevertheless, just like Abraham, sinners today are justified by faith. Of course, we are also those who are looking forward as well for Christ to return and to consummate his eternal kingdom, of which we are currently citizens by faith. So God's gospel promises, again, they come to us in Christ Jesus, the ultimate seed of the woman, offspring of Abraham. If we have Christ by faith, then we have redemption. We have the blessing of Abraham. And so we hold fast to this promise in Christ Jesus. The scriptures, again, were always in the Old Testament driving towards Jesus. And this is something the Judaizers ultimately failed to grasp in its fullness. They viewed Jesus as something of an addition to the law. Believe and obey the law so as to be saved, they would say. And this is simply an incorrect, damning reading of the Old Testament. Thirdly, God's gospel promise was not voided out by the Mosaic Covenant. Really already been making this point, but God's gospel promise was not voided out by the Mosaic Covenant. So if what what we've been saying is true, then what do we make of the Mosaic Covenant? The law that's given on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 and beyond. If it is not put in place in order to contribute to our justification, then why add it? Why is it there? We're going to look at that more next week as we get to verse 19, where that question is explicitly asked and then answered by Paul. But it's raised here as well in verse 17. He starts to to, to get to this. 
He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So once again, the point is God made a covenant promise to Abraham to bless the world through his singular offspring. And Abraham received the blessing of what that offspring would do in advance by faith in that promise, believing God's word. And as we've seen, the promise was guaranteed by God's covenant oath. Then, this is saying 430 years later at Sinai, God forms a different covenant with some of Abraham's offspring, the nation of Israel. This is what he's talking about when he says the law that came 430 years after. He's talking about the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant specifically. Now there's some question about the best way to resolve this statement about the law coming 430 years after the promise to Abraham. And that's because in Exodus 12, verses 40 to 41, we're told there that the people of Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. And if you think Abraham uh, did not live in Egypt, he, he lived quite a bit before that time, before his grandson Jacob and all of his sons moved to Egypt. And so there's some question, what, is, is this a misuse of, of, that, of that text? Well, there's a number of possible explanations of this. First of all, the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, says that the 430 years covers the time that Israel was in Egypt and in Canaan, which would be the, the wandering in Canaan prior to going down to Egypt, which could very well, would very well stretch back to Abraham's time when he left his home to, to go to the land that God had promised to his descendants. Others say that Paul is perhaps thinking of the last time that the Abrahamic promise is stated, which is stated to Jacob, his grandson. And that is right before Jacob goes down to Egypt. And so we read that in Genesis 46, 1 to 4. God promises, again, he renews the promise made to Abraham, saying, this is, I'm, I'm giving this now to you, Jacob. And then immediately, Jacob ends up going down into Egypt. That's a very likely resolution to that. But however it is resolved, the reality is that well after the covenant promise was established with Abraham and then confirmed to Isaac and then to Jacob, this other covenant, this Mosaic covenant and law was established. And so one might think that perhaps this covenant was overriding the Abrahamic covenant and the promises made in that covenant. Maybe now those blessings to Abraham were indeed to be attained by law-keeping. So maybe now, obedience to this old covenant law, this Mosaic law, is how we are to strive to attain a righteous standing before God. But what Paul is saying here is that whatever we want to say about the purpose of the Mosaic covenant, we must conclude that it does not cancel out the sworn promises made by God to Abraham. Again, it cannot do that. God was covenant bound to keep what he had laid out to Abraham, what he had promised to Abraham. He can't go change the terms. So again, we will look more next week at the purpose of the Mosaic law and why God brought it in. But it is clearly here, Paul is saying, it, is, it clearly was not established in order to introduce a legalistic principle in the matter of justification. There was a promise to Abraham to save sinners through his offspring, Jesus Christ. And sinners benefit by faith in that promise. Abraham, again, an Old Testament saints, looking ahead to that promise and the coming of that offspring, and we look back, we see Christ has come, and we believe in him. And so the law given at Sinai did not change or upset those terms. It did not now introduce a legalistic principle to how one is justified. And so the Judaizers, by arguing that very thing, are dead wrong. It's, it's simply not true that this law must be kept in order to be saved. 
It wasn't true of Abraham, and it wasn't true of any of his spiritual descendants. Nobody was saved by law-keeping. The law had, different, had a different purpose, again, which we'll see more next time. If justification by faith alone was not nullified or wiped out by the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, then it is surely wrong to nullify it today by demanding any works of the law in order to be justified. In light of the clear teaching in Scripture, especially in Hebrews, but elsewhere as well, that the Mosaic Covenant is done away with and obsolete, and the new covenant has been established in Christ's blood. This just makes it all the more true that one cannot be justified by obedience to that law. Again, the good news is that God saves graciously all who believe in Christ Jesus. We look away from our law-keeping and to the chosen offspring where we find God's gracious gift of salvation. brings us to the fourth and final point. The promise of the gospel is the promise of an eternal inheritance which is graciously given by God, received by faith alone. The promise of the gospel is the promise of an eternal inheritance which is graciously given by God and received by faith alone. We're still just beating this drum here. The Mosaic Covenant didn't nullify the Abrahamic covenantal promise Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, that is by obedience to the law, then it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This whole idea of giving it by promise and receiving it by faith upholds God's graciousness. That's what we read in Romans chapter 4. He talks here about an inheritance. If the inheritance comes... So the question is, what inheritance is Paul referring to here? Certainly God promised the earthly land of Canaan to Abraham and to his descendants. And God, we see in the Old Testament scriptures, made good on that promise. But again, Abraham was promised more than that. He was promised the Messiah would come from his offspring. The physical land of Canaan was promised to him, but it also typified or served as a picture of a much greater inheritance, the heavenly city. So Hebrews tells us that this is what Abraham was ultimately looking forward to. Uh, Some people miss this, and it, it can be missed if we are reading through Genesis quickly. But if we would allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and if we would take, I think, the right principle of interpreting the Bible, that the New Testament scripture being later revelation of God helps us to interpret the older revelation of God, then we see this unmistakably clear. In Hebrews 11 verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So why did he do this? Why did he go to this earthly inheritance? And even though he didn't know exactly where he was going, why did he go and live in this way? Why did he obey? Why did he do this? For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews, which is scripture, of course, is interpreting Genesis for us. And it is telling us what Abraham was ultimately looking forward to. That it wasn't just the physical land of Canaan he was looking forward to. He went there because ultimately 
He was looking for the greater inheritance that would come, this city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And Hebrews 11 continues to go on saying all the Old Testament saints are doing the same thing and ultimately we enter into this together with them. The earthly inheritance was great, but Abraham knew enough to know that the Messiah brings about much more than that. If the promise of Genesis 3.15 of that offspring of the woman was now being given to Abraham, Abraham understood enough to know that if this offspring is going to reverse the curse of sin, this is going to be a much greater reality than life in just the physical land of Canaan. There's a greater thing that God is at work doing here, even as he gives us this land of Canaan. And when we get to the New Testament and we read in Matthew and we read even the Mary's Magnificat, when she is told, of course, that she is going to give birth to this offspring. She is praising God for his faithfulness to Abraham and to his offspring. And then when Zechariah is prophesying after his tongue is loosed, he's the father of John the Baptist. Same thing, he is praising God because of his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. Understanding that this promise is coming to fulfillment now. And the blessing of Christ Jesus is not simply a physical land that he gives to us, but is of eternal life in the new creation, the greater Canaan. This is the blessing that Abraham received by promise, that justified him as he believed. Again, Paul is saying here, it didn't come to him by works of the law. In fact, it was given to him and he believed before circumcision was even a thing. Genesis 15 says he's justified, and circumcision comes in Genesis 17. Abraham received the inheritance by believing the promise that was given to him. It says here in verse 18 that God gave it to Abraham. That word gave it, it's the Greek word charizomai, and it has grace as the root word. Charis is the word grace, charizomai is to give. It means he graciously gave it to Abraham. It was a gracious promise to Abraham, and he received it and benefited by it by believing that promise. The inheritance was received by faith not by his works. And so it is that the introduction of the law 430 years later didn't change that, didn't annul the promise made, didn't change the terms for Abraham or any of his descendants who would believe the promise. Abraham is appealed to by Paul really as the prototypical believer. He's said as the man of faith in verse 9. The prototypical believer who is justified by faith. Again, nothing has changed. Again, while Abraham, the promise was forward-looking, while it was somewhat mysterious, and as God, the Old Testament unfolds, there are further promises of this one who would come and this redemption and salvation that God would yet work for his people. It's still a little bit cloudy. What exactly is this going to look like? Who will this offspring be? Peter tells us in his epistle that they, the prophets were, uh, were, were looking ahead and searching for this person and who this would be and when it would be. It was somewhat mysterious in terms of its full meaning and significance. But with the coming of Christ... Clarity is increased. The promise of Abraham comes to pass now in him. So sinners have always been justified before God 
as a gift of his grace. Always been justified by faith, by believing the promise. This only becomes clearer in the New Testament, but it's not a new teaching in the New Testament. But it does become a little clearer in places like 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is further explanation of this promise that God has made, that you are right to hold fast to, come what may. Whatever difficulty might come, whatever doubts might be pressed in upon you, to hold God to his word to save all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is, again, seeking to preserve to us in Galatians is the grace of God. God has always given the inheritance of eternal life by promised mercy to those who trust him for it. So again, I would just encourage you to to throw yourself on the promise of Almighty God. We see him throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. One of the ways that they can be of great help to us is that they reveal the fact that God does keep his word. The, 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 think of the time that passed between Genesis 3.15 and Matthew chapter 1 in the coming of Christ. And all of the time in there for people to doubt that God is going to keep his word. Will he keep his word or will he not? And of course he's proven he does keep his word. We see him over and over again promise to his people to keep his word to them. And he does. This is who God is. He has accommodated himself to us on account of our weaknesses with things like even what he did for Abraham in the covenant, in separating the parts of the animals and passing through in this theophany, this vision of God in this fire pot, showing this solemn promise made to Abraham. And of course, in the coming of Christ, we look and see the very blood of the Son of God who took on human flesh and died and shed his blood to save sinners. We are reminded of this every time we take the Lord's Supper. God reminds us of this again, that he keeps his word. This is shed for you. This is done for you over and over again. We are being reminded of this by God, that we might not lose heart, that when the world presses in, we might not lose heart. We might believe him. When we struggle with our own battles with sin and our own failings to measure up again, we might again believe him, that Christ has shed his blood for you. And this is received by faith. And we can indeed lift our heads and our drooping hands and and press on, continuing in faith. God has kept his promise to Abraham. And as we look ahead to the return of Christ Jesus, has he not said he will come back? Has he promised he will? And yet here we are again. It's been a couple of thousands of years since he said that. Is he going to keep his word? Will God keep his word? Will he return? Will there be an eternal inheritance? Is there one presently being preserved for us in heaven now? Will Christ come back and consummate his kingdom and make all things new? God says he will. He has promised he will. And so we believe he will yet do this. Even in Peter's day, and he writes, there are those who were mocking, where is this promise of his coming? Even in the first century, Christians are already being tempted to think maybe he's not coming back. 
And we're reminded with God, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. He doesn't operate on our timeline. But he does keep his word. He is the faithful God. So believe in him. When doubts about your standing before God come to you, cast yourself on God's sworn promises. Say, you, God, say, you will save those who trust your son. And I clearly have no hope other than that because I'm a mess. And this is the right place for us to rest ourselves, to stand, to claim that promise. Again, the inheritance that awaits believers is graciously given and it is received by faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you are patient with us. We're thankful that you have given us your word that reveals who you are to us all over it. It reveals your faithfulness. We do not understand all of your ways. But you are clear that you are unchanging. And that salvation belongs to you. And you say that all who believe in your son are forgiven. Are adopted into your kingdom. Are citizens of your heavenly kingdom. And that you will complete that work. That we will one day stand before you righteous because of your kindness and your saving work. That we will receive glorified bodies. And all of this struggle and fighting with sin and wrestling that goes on will be done with. We will one day be truly the church at rest. And so we do look forward to that day. I pray that you would help us to have this promise ever before us, that we might live in light of that day, in light of what you have promised. Father, we confess to you we are distracted so often, even by the good things that you give us, and we acknowledge they are good things. Father, where anyone is struggling to believe, I pray that you would be ever so merciful to them. I pray that you would confirm again to our hearts that the God who calls us is faithful, that you will surely finish what you've begun, that you would help us to see that Our hope is no idle hope as we are hoping in Christ. Father, we thank you again for your your word to us and the promises you have given us and for your patience with us in our weakness. So we praise you together in the name of Jesus. Amen.